Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with the platform to perform. I'm your host, Todd Davidson, and on episode 10 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I have one of my favorite youth strength and conditioning coaches, Shane Fitzgibbon. I first came across Shane at the 2017 Child to Champion Conference, where he delivered a workshop on core training for the youth athlete. And what I loved about Shane's work was he delivered it to a group of fully grown strength and conditioning coaches, but as if we were all children. The games he used were absolutely superb. The mannerisms of his coaching were absolutely spot on. And I still use a lot of the coaching cues and drills shown from that conference then. Ever since then, I've been following his work and I'm absolutely delighted to announce Shane onto the podcast. Hi Shane, how are you doing today, mate? Hey Todd, I'm fantastic, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, very well. Uh, from chatting off air, one of uh, a mutually favourite book of ours is uh, Simon Sinek's Start With Why, and I love it starting the podcast by finding it out why it is that people do what they do. So why do you do what you do, and how has it led to what you're currently doing? Well, I started off as a Taekwondo instructor. I got my black belts while I was in first year in college, and there was no school um, in, in, in the city I was studying in. So I decided to bite the bullet and, and open up that school as a fresh-faced 18-year-old. 26 years later, I'm still teaching because I absolutely fell in love with it. And after I graduated university, I just didn't really want to do anything else except instruct. And a few years ago, I kind of just fell into the role of strength conditioning. Um, I had been a reasonably successful competitor in Taekwondo in my uh, younger years. and. A friend of mine who was my physical therapist as well for years had encouraged me to write about my success because I was still competing with, with young adults, 18, 19, 20 years of age, even though I was in my mid to late 30s. So he said, you know, Shane, you need to write, write about this and what you've, you've done to maintain the longevity in your career as a competitor. So I did that. And uh, yeah, so I self-published the book and it got some attention locally. And next thing you know, I was being invited to work with some local GA, that's uh, Gaelic football and hurling teams. And I realized very quickly I had quite a lot of gap in my knowledge in terms of, uh, you know, speed and agility and working with maybe teams in a, in, a, in a weight room and so on. So I passed on the first opportunity, but I asked for a bit of time. And I went and I got myself certified as an SNC coach here in Ireland. And I went to every single workshop I could get to, likes of Duncan French, Kelvin Giles, got to, to do workshops with Dan, Dan John, and um, I don't know if I mentioned uh, Mike Boyle. And uh, it just, it gave me a really, really, really good broad view of strength and conditioning. And uh, I've just been studying and working in that field ever since. And all the stuff I've learned as a martial arts instructor has really intersected with what I can do as a strength and conditioning coach. That's awesome. And how, going down the martial arts route, so uh, I used to box and my sort of love from strength and conditioning comes from being a failed athlete. What lessons have you learned from martial arts that are key to your coaching practices, whether that's teaching Taekwondo yourself or just in simply strength and conditioning? I think one of the key things I learned is perseverance. 
most of the time we we don't succeed first go and you know you might have heard that you know success is built in failure well this is absolutely true but you know i think lack of perseverance is one of the biggest reasons for people not achieving what they want to achieve you know just dropping the head and giving up far too soon so it's actually one of the five tenets of taekwondo is perseverance and i think just sticking with it stick with it stick with it i always say to my to my students in, in taekwondo the only reason why somebody doesn't achieve black belt is just not persevering yeah sure they might not practice enough whatever but at the end of the day to really fail at it they have to give up yeah they stick in the environment long enough they get sick of being at the belt they're on and they progress so perseverance that would be the big one brilliant and just out of pure, just out of interest what are the uh, four others courtesy is number one integrity self-control and indomitable spirit and i'm proud to say that the founder of taekwondo uh, general che hong hee from korea he always said that if you are if you're not embodying the tenets of taekwondo in your training you're not really doing taekwondo That's i like to maybe just punching kicking you know but the do in taekwondo is is all about this the spirit it's it's about how you conduct yourself it's about the philosophy I think that's absolutely brilliant because a lot of people who aren't from a coaching background just look at coaching and say, oh, well, you're just getting kids hot and sweaty or running around and, oh, that's nice. And it's uh, certainly somebody's got to do it, but it's almost looked down on to say, oh, it's only coaching. Um, do you think there's a certain snobbery within strength and conditioning, perhaps, for example, most people who go to university to study sports science, strength and conditioning typically say, I want to work with the elite athletes. And it's almost like, for example, working with youth then leads you to the 21s or 23s. Uh, and then there's the sort of pinnacle with the elite of the elite. Do you think that a snobbery does exist? And if so, why do you think this snobbery or this idea that that's the way the progression pathway goes exists? Um. I'm sure it exists, but I, I wouldn't pigeon it to strength conditioning. I think there's snobbery in, in, in every profession, and that's just because we're dealing with human beings and we're flawed. And, you know, I'm sure at some point somebody could have accused me of being, you know, maybe aristocratic in training or whatever. <laughs> I hope not, but it's possible, you know. Um, but the way I see it is that especially here in Ireland when we, we don't have many professional sports here. So it's much more difficult to choose, you know, who you work with or you'd have a very, very small training population, you know, um, compared to, you know, compared to the UK where you've got cricket, you've got, you know, you've got such a massive, um, um soccer, you know, network and all the different leagues and so on, right up to the, to the premier league, you know, semi-professional as well. Uh, all the rugby clubs, you know, here it's Gaelic football and hurling, which are two amateur sports. But if you make, you know, if you get to play for your county, you train like a professional. But apart from that, you know, we've the the FAI and the rugby. That's pretty much it, you know. So we don't get to choose really how many athletes we're going to get to work with, you know. So I'll be honest with you. My attitude is, I, I'll give you a good example. I have a parent who trained with me when I opened up the school first. 
and he never made it to black belt with me. But a few years ago, he brought his child to me. So I think if you're going to gauge your success as an instructor or, or a coach, you know, whatever terminology you want to use, look and see what your athletes think of you in 20 years after you finished coaching them. That's the real gauge of a successful coach, in my opinion. I've got a guy who didn't get the black belt with me for whatever reason, but he's bringing his child to me 20 years later to train her. I can't think of a better compliment. Oh, absolutely. I hope I've answered your question. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, the reason I ask is because um, in a previous episode with Rob Anderson, he gave an analogy I really liked um, and he's used teaching. And he said, nobody says to a primary school teacher, so when are you going to teach secondary? And nobody says to a secondary school teacher, so when are you going to teach university or, or college? Yet for some reason in S&C, if you tell people who aren't from a strength and conditioning background, oh, I coach i don't know the under 18s or whoever it is so when are you going to touch the under 21s when are you going to be in the first team um so that's the reason why i asked that because i always find it interesting talking yeah. to people both in strength and conditioning and out of strength and conditioning whether or not we're done a disservice or people understand the complexities working with kids rather than just saying oh it's just children uh, i it's actually a brilliant analogy and and in fairness I wouldn't dream of taking away from, you know, from coaches that are working with elite athletes. No, absolutely we not. Need, we need them there. Um, but we also need fantastic coaches working with the underage. Uh, because here's the thing. You can do far more with the, with the young, young athletes than you can do as they get older. You can, you can, make, you can have more influence on, on their, their, their cognitive development. You can have more influence on their social development. You know, by the, I mean, did you know that 95% of your personality is formed by the age of seven? I can't, I, can't, I know a lot of things happen <laughs> around seven, but certainly yeah. not that much. You know, so yeah, like, you know, Aristotle, is, I think it was Aristotle that says, quote me from wrong, but, um, you know, he said, you know, give me a child yes. for some years and I'll show you a man, you know? Yeah, it's something like, um, yeah, funnily enough, I was watching a, uh, I wish I could remember the name of the uh, documentary, but it was on BBC lately. And uh, they're looking at child psychology and how the brain develops. And the quote was something along the lines of show me the boy at seven and I'll show you the man basically referring to what you've said that the brain is so developed at that point that that's, you know, if it's not happened by then, then you're sort of, as you said, um, swimming against the tide. Mm. Like, like you can make, you can make, you, you can um, make impressions. You can certainly help developments, but you know, it's uh, largely who a person is. It's at seven, seven to ten, really, seven to ten years of age. That's their personality for you know for life. Now, you know how a person thinks and feels. You can certainly um, influence how they act. Yeah. But um, yeah, for me, where it's at, it's at the kids. It's with kids, working with kids. You know, because you, you you can change society by working with kids. Not necessarily about working with adults, and and I just think that um we need to to, to take one of uh, Brett Clicker's expressions, and it's something that I'm already doing, but I love his phrase: extend your influence. I think you can extend your influence beyond the sporting arena much easier with the, with uh, with the young athletes, or all my athletes, and this is not just taekwondo. I actually won't work with any athlete if they're not making their bed, cleaning their room doing other chores that the parents would like them to do within reason, 
yeah but that's the deal you know when, when we do an assessment we, i know you're going to ask me about assessments later but after we do that first get together and we have a chat and so on and look at removing and i'll ask them what's your commitment level of achieving your goals whatever your good they said their goal was in sport on a scale of one to ten what is your commitment level and let, usually they'll say seven or an eight and they're pretty committed but then i'll tell them okay if you want me to work with you and I, and I can help you i won't work with you if i can't help you if I work with you, I want you to do this, 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 and this to help your parents. And then I'll ask them again, how committed are you? <laughs> it's, it's the real litmus test, I think. And if yeah. they'll step up. And I'll check in with the parents every week. You know, is, is Johnny, you know, making his bed still and uh, keeping the room tidy and, you know, someone helping out at home. And if they're doing that, what they've learned to do is take responsibility for themselves. Because one thing that I see... You know, that's very common now, especially in team sports, is there's a dart of leaders oh, on, the, yeah. on the pitch, in my opinion. Um, and when we have a world with such a lack of, of leadership, well, who's the world going to listen to? Is it going to listen to people who can't make their own bet? If, if you're going to take responsibility for a team and you, you want to have influence, you have to start taking responsibility for yourself. And that's a big part of my coaching process. That's brilliant. Um, and to reference one of the uh, authors or books we were speaking about uh, off air, Dan John's got a thing where he says to people who ask him for a training program, do you floss your teeth? And they'll sort of look at him and be like, what does this have to do with training? He's like, if you can't commit two minutes a day to doing something that is good for you, why am I going to waste my time yeah. running a 12 week program <laughs> that's going to be hard in the assumption that you're going to somehow find the mental energy to commit to that? Brilliant. Brilliant. I hadn't heard that one. Brilliant. It, it, it's also attention to detail, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, when it comes to programming for youth athletes, and I use that word very loosely because I've certainly made the mistake of going too structured too soon. But even simple things like, for example, if we're doing hands elevated press ups or some form of uh, TRX straight leg inverted row, I'll say to them, right, we need to note the notch height that the uh, bar is in the rack because that's going to make things difficult. We need to note how far away yeah. your feet are from the wall. And uh, recently I posted on my Instagram that I basically a picture of some torn up programs because I said to my youth athletes, I said, like, what do we think about the programs? And uh, they basically, you know, alluded to the fact that they were getting in the way. And to be brutally honest, I, I agree with them as well. I was like, actually me making you fill out more paperwork is just making this like yet another academic lesson and we need to be moving. We need to be having fun. Oh, a hundred percent. And here's the reality of it. Um, yeah. It, it, you know, we're, we're coaching young athletes. It, it, they have to be having fun. It's, uh, it's actually one of the biggest reasons why, why children drop out of sports because they're not having fun. If they're being trained like many adults, they're not going to last. On the subject of being trained with many adults, we spoke earlier in the podcast about the complexities of actually training young athletes. So this is going to be a two-part question is one to people who either don't work with young athletes or perhaps aren't aware of the science of training youth athletes. What complexities do exist in regards to not treating them like many adults? And the second part of the question is where do you see practitioners going wrong when it comes to potentially overcomplicating training for kids? Okay, that's a great question. Okay, I think the biggest complexity really in dealing with children is that no two days are the same for children. 
their bodies are in this constant flux, especially, you know, uh, around um, puberty. So, but even right throughout their teenagers, you know, they're still, they, they may still have more growth to come. If they're late developers, are going to see growth at any, at any point. So all the time we're, we're taking into a factor, their hormones can be changing their moods. Their, their, their center of gravity is changing as they grow. It's one of the things we really have to watch out for is this constant flux with to do with kids. Um, the second part of the question was, oh yeah, well, and of course adults, well, once they're fully grown, you're fully grown. You can get stronger and so on, but you know, generally speaking, you don't have those issues, you know. Um, what was the second part again? Uh, the second part was, where do you feel people overcomplicate it when it comes to training youth athletes? Okay. It comes back down there, just giving them too much to think about. Uh, yes, definitely, we can, we can overcoach and too many cues. I like to give them one, at most, two things to think about when we're, when we're, when we're working on anything. Let's say I'm working on a squat. Maybe I just want them to keep their knees in line with their toes. Maybe that's it. If their body's dropping too much, if I've got one thing I want them to focus on, I'm going to stick to that one thing today. I don't care what else happens. I don't care if their heels lift up. I'm, if it's the one thing I want to focus on, I'm going to focus on that one thing. The next session, I'm going to, I'm going to correct or, you know, something else. I want to just keep it simple. You know, that expression, kiss. Yeah. Keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> you know, keep it simple, keep it simple, and make it fun. If they're having fun, they, they, they're going to be engaged. They're going to engage in the process with you. They're going to buy into what you're doing with them but only if they're having fun and enjoying it. If it's a labor, it's not going to happen. They might be really motivated. They might want to, you know, in my case, they might want to play f soccer for Ireland. But if it's an 11-year-old. I mean, come on. In 14, they might want to play tennis. Yeah. So, you know, I want to have, have it fun. I want to keep them training with me for as long as possible that I can influence them for life, not just for soccer. I want to prepare them for everything. You know, for any sport, if they want to climb Mount Everest, you know, we lost two Irish um, climbers this week to, to Everest. Um, may they rest in peace. But just to give you an example, you know, I want them to be able to do whatever it is that they want to take up in, in older, in, you know, in later in life. So whether it's bungee jumping, some something crazy like skydiving, the body is there to be explored. Let, let, let's explore it young and let's maximize their, their abilities. Can't do that with an adult. Not so much. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. By the time you're working with an adult, especially if they're if they're in the elite level, that they want to focus on one thing, and that's the sport they're currently doing. That's it. But with kids, everything is on the table. I want to prepare them that they could change their mind to take up a different sport in the next couple of years. And as I said, you know, moving for life is my motto. And going back to like preparing them for everything, I would. I would say that sports specificity is one of perhaps the most misunderstood or bastardized terms. How do you deal with, for example, parents who bring their child to you and say, right, bringing Johnny to you is a soccer player or whatever. We want to get him better at soccer. And how do you deal with parent expectation, Johnny's expectation, while still getting what you feel is needed in the program in terms of keeping these movement options on the table? Funnily enough, I haven't run into that challenge much with parents. 
they tend to trust me. I'm lucky in that I've built enough of, or this is going to sound aristocratic now, <laughs> after all we were saying earlier, <laughs> but this is the truth. Um, I think I've built up a good enough reputation locally that by the time a parent comes to me, they've already heard enough good stuff that they, they trust me. So I, I don't run into that too much with parents. Now, when I've worked with some uh, amateur youth level teams in the last few years, what can often happen is the skills coach of the teams can interfere in the training process a little bit more. Uh, and that's only because they don't quite understand the process. Like I could be working, uh, I could be doing some speed training and the coach could be seeing the kids are resting in between sprints. And because the children aren't out of breath, they don't understand that when you're doing speed training, you want zero fatigue. So I'm giving them that recovery time where maybe we're doing a little bit of active rest, but they're getting a recovery before we do our next, uh, our next rep. And I've had them coming up and maybe saying, listen, listen, could you, you know, maybe get them doing something else, push-ups or something in, in between or whatever. It's, you know, they're, they're not working hard enough, but they're thinking conditioning. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, I'm doing some speed drills here. I'm going to do what it says in the tin. I want them to get their speed result. I'm not trying to run them into the ground. And so what I don't get it from parents, I have got it from team coaches over the years. That's just one example. So uh, a really good example there where they're looking at your drill and thinking, ah, conditioning, but this isn't hard enough. My drills are way harder. Whereas you're looking in and saying, right, this is a speed day. Another, as well as sports specificity, I find another term, which in my head should be so simple, but isn't, is the word fitness. So my first question is, how do you define fitness? And my second question is, how do you educate or differentiate between a term like fitness versus physical literacy? Okay. Well, let's start off with, okay, so you asked about a definition. So let's give it a, a definition. I'll be general. So look, we know physical literacy, it's the ability to accomplish a wide range of tasks with competence, with confidence, and physical fitness is more to do with you know, increasing your strength or health through exercise. And while this isn't a very popular thing to hear, I do like to make people realize that exercise is healthy, sport not necessarily so. Sport isn't always exercise. Sport can be very stressful. And because it's competitive, it can drive people to, you know, to lengths that they wouldn't ordinarily go to if they were just exercising for health. So that being said, uh, physical literacy, when I am working with, with, uh, with, with kids, just because they're playing soccer doesn't mean I won't have them dribbling a ball like a basketball player, throwing and catching, climbing, getting down on the ground, getting back up, rolling. I want them to be able to do everything and that's and do it with reasonable confidence because at the end of the day, you know, they may want to go and actually play those games or whatever, you know, with, with friends and it, the more confident that they are, the more likely they're willing to try new things. And we were mentioning off air about one of the biggest challenges with coaching adults is the older we get, 
the, the more afraid we are of trying new things because maybe we just don't think we can or we don't want to be embarrassed or whatever. But if we can coach kids to expand their comfort zones, get used to being uncomfortable and trying new things, well, I think that is not really another definition for physical literacy. Physical literacy being willing to try new physical movements, even if they're not familiar with you. Because yes, okay, it's harder to learn new things, you know, after uh, myelination, but it can be done. But the first thing we have to overcome is, are we going to give it a try? Oh, that's brilliant. Like in terms of the, in terms of the young girls that I work with um, in my current role, you will see, you'll present a new movement task. And typically I'll present and say, look, I'm not going to coach it. I'm just going to see, how you get on with it here's the task and those who tend to have better levels of what we would call physical literacy are more than happy to give it a go those who are perhaps not as physically literate as the other girls they will tend to ask me questions be like right so the hands move like this or the feet move like this and they're almost trying to mm. de uh, decompartmentalize it if that word makes sense and yeah. um, make myself feel very cl more clever than i am um, but yeah those who have good physical literacy will tend to go bang into a task and if it's not quite right they'll be like right okay i'll turn i'll change it or they've got the perceptual awareness to be like ah i move like this but maybe i should try it like this yes absolutely uh you know again yeah absolutely i mean their 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 confidence in themselves that even if it's new be able to, to be willing to give it a go we're opening up a whole new world for those kids slash young adults and then older adults, you know? Um, the other part of the question you were asking there was about fitness. Yes. Um, and of course, so look, we defined fitness, yeah, but fitness is extremely specific, isn't it? It's fitness, it's fit for a specific purpose. But I do tend to hear, you know, the word fitness being thrown about as in terms of just general stamina and running about a, a football pitch. Yeah. And uh, what's interesting is that I do, I do almost no, call it cardio training, if you like, with young kids. Yeah. Because their energy systems is predominantly aerobic anyway. And I find that if I get them moving more efficiently, they tend to look much fitter in their, in their matches and in their training. And it regularly happens. So the, the analogy I use always is when, when a new kid's working with me, okay, first, before we're going to try and build you a bigger engine, we're going to make sure, we're going to make sure that you're not pressing down on the brakes. So if they've got poor motor control or very poor core stability, uh, poor mo mobility, these are all issues that, that I like to overcome with them kind of early on. And then I like to build in some strength as well because strength trumps almost everything with kids. And what happens is that usually after as quick as two, three, four weeks, parents coming back to me and saying yeah his, his hurling coach or his soccer coach has just been saying you know he's looking fitter already i haven't done any major kind of stamina work with him but what he's done is because they're moving more efficiently they're just using less energy to get the same job done so they have more reserves yeah it, it's one of those it's the reason why i asked you to, to define the terms is just because uh we've all been in situations where for example a coach a parent whoever it may be will say uh, Johnny, I'm going to keep using that name. Sorry. Uh, little Johnny's not fit. And you're like, how do you define fitness? Cause his ability to do said task may be limited by the fact, as you said, he's got his, uh, he's still got the handbrake on or he doesn't know how to steer the vehicle of his, his own body. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the the comparison I you know that I make myself is you know a marathon runner versus a sprinter. Who's fitter? They're 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 both fit for their sport. Yeah. You know, you could ask the question, who's healthier? Yeah. That's a, that's a different question entirely, and that's the question we don't ask often enough. Who's no. healthier? No, not at all. And going back to your sport and exercise debate, um, I think his name is James O'Keefe, but I'll have to uh, I'll have to double check. I've not just plucked that out of thin air. Um, but he was testing blood profiles within uh, not blood profiles. Sorry, he was testing something to do with the heart in marathon runners, and basically found that consistently that certain heart cells were basically dying off, and the the marathon itself is just so stressful. That even though we see this person who's completed 26.2 miles and yes they're fit for the task of running the marathon but are they healthy and you know as you said it's controversial because the instant question in response to that would be like oh what would you rather this person do sit on the sofa and do nothing and it's like that's not what i said but let's actually look at this as a yeah. whole rather than that isolated sporting environment i know i know i know i know it's yeah. It's it's a it's it's an interesting debate I come across all, all all the time, you know, about um you know, the kids are coming in and they've got their heart set on excelling in a particular sport and you know, I, I just I want to arm them with as broad a range of movement skills and competencies competencies as uh, as possible. And then sky's the limit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in terms of in terms of diving a little bit deeper into what those competencies are. So we as strength and conditioning coaches, we might say, right, it's squat, hinge, push, pull, brace, land, rotate, whatever. You've spent the weekend having Brett Clicker over in uh, Galway, and you talked a lot about the perceptual motor skills. So my first question is, for those of listeners who aren't familiar with perceptual motor skills, what are they? And my second question is, why are they so important? Okay, that's a cracking question, actually. Thank God I did the course and paid attention. <laughs> um, okay, so we, we do. We think of the fundamental movement skills like squat, lunge, and all these things as being the, the, the foundation for everything else. But in reality, we have to go another layer deeper and think about, the, as you said, the perceptual motor skills. So visual, temporal, which is you know, an understanding of rhythm and timing proprioceptive, um, sense of direction, sense of relationship between you and other bodies or obstacles. And a child's understanding of these is critical in terms of being able to move well and deal with obstacles and really be, for example, if you say to a, to a kid, child, um, you know, hinge your hips, what if they don't know where their hips are? What if they don't know what that hinge means? You know? So being able to understand the relationship of their body, just, you know, bending your knees, straighten your knees, soft knees, showing them this, the understanding of, of how their body works. Okay, understanding left, right. Can they cross the midline? Can they move their right arm across the midline to their left side of their body? Or are they having to rotate their body to get there? All these things. Can they tune into the sound of something? Getting them to close their eyes and listen for a click of the fingers or a clap. All these different things. They're, they're all relative to being able to perform in, in sports and just to be healthy anyway. And one analogy that I use all the time is 
is that you know we, we, we think about being able to do big movements like say bench press or squat and then we say okay well we need to be able to do unloaded movements first but the perceptual motor skills prop the whole lot up and just like a, a brick wall if you have a solid 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 row of bricks at the bottom it's going to hold up the rest of the wall but here's the thing if you don't have that good foundation you can keep loading the top of the wall eventually the whole lot's going to come down like a house of cards but if you keep adding on to the bottom even if you are a very accomplished athlete you can still improve those perceptual motor skills and here's the thing if you add extra bricks to the bottom of that wall you're still going to make it stronger at the top but you can't keep adding indefinitely at the top without strengthening the foundation that makes a lot of sense uh, i wish i could remember whose quote is but uh, the one i like is the wider the base the bigger the pyramid which if you imagine just chucking bricks on and then like a jeng like the house of cards jenga whatever it all just falls to pieces yeah and i was going to actually say that as well what a lot of people are doing is it's like jenga because if you you know, we know if, if you don't use it, you lose it. I'm not sure how much that applies to the perceptual motor skills, but let's say it doesn't hurt to cover cover our base and, and keep working on it. And all we need to do is we can develop these things through gameplay. And that is the core of, of, of Brett's Spider Fit Kids program is using gameplay to develop these perceptual motor skills. And, and I have to say this, the system is genius. So let's say that uh, if we neglect these things as we get older, well, maybe it is like Jenga. Maybe we're kind of pulling a brick out here or there and trying to put it on top. And the whole lot, you know, can come down eventually. Because look, we, we do see some absolutely wonderful players who are not good athletes, you know, who are just, you know, we say, oh, it's bad luck, it's bad luck. They're always getting injured. Is it always bad luck? Yeah, I I always think if someone, I don't know, even in rugby, if someone absolutely clatters you, yeah, there might not be anything you can do about it. But my sort of S&C brain thinks, right, if you were more attuned to, for example, the perceptual skills and you spotted him running half a second earlier, or mm. for example, you had more efficient movements, so you could avoid the tackle. Um, yes. Obviously, some things like, you know, you happen to get hit by a car, then uh, there's not really... Not really yeah. much. Not really much that perceptual motor skills and strength can do in the way of that. But yeah, the bad luck example I think only relates to such a small fraction of cases. And uh, one that made me laugh is uh, I won't mention the footballer's name, but I remember reading in the Evening Standard a, uh, a few couple of years ago, and they said that this player just had terribly bad luck and just kept getting injured in the same place. And I was like, you don't think that the first injury was never rehabilitated properly or there was something underlying mm. and like, you know, bad luck versus continually injuring the same site. Like that's indicative that on some sort of level, there's a problem there. Absolutely. And I, I, I don't have any um, insight into the sports rehabilitation of say, you know, a, a major professional club, but I do often, I, I see it in an amateur level and, um, you know, a lot of time people are involved in, in the uh, rehabilitation profession, like physiotherapists or whatever. They tend, because they're allopathically trained, they, they can often tend, and I don't want to power everyone with the same brush now, but I'm just thinking in general, they can tend to focus on the site of injury. Let's say it's a knee. But what if that time spent during rehabilitation was spent doing a whole holistic rehabilitation? 
that not only were we going to work on, on rebuilding the knee, but let's look, at every, let's look at all those perceptual skills that we could be building. You could be sitting down, getting work on a knee, getting a massage in your, your, your quads, whatever, but you could be lying down with your eyes closed and trying to identify sounds, so you could be training your, 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 your oral skills. There's, there's so much that you could be doing to develop the all-around athlete. Yeah, and certainly ways you could make it a lot more, I mean, again, not to stereotype, but on the whole, if you said to an athlete, right, what would you rather do, your sport or rehab? Obviously, fundamentally, they would say their sport, and they would say they enjoy their sport a lot more. But the practitioners I really like to uh, follow are the ones who are integrating those perceptual motor skills early, if for nothing else, other than to get the athlete, one, connected to the longer-term goal of where that rehab's going, but two, just to keep them engaged. And I think it's Ben Rosenblatt or some other practitioner who said injuries are opportunities, but keep it fun, let's keep them connected to the sport, and if possible, keep them connected to the whole reason they're seeing you in the first place, which is on some level, shape, or form to get better at their sport. Yeah, absolutely. I actually, you know, when we talk about injuries as well, and, and like, um, you know, so many injuries are, are called, non-contact injuries are caused by change of direction. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of topical now because I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a Liverpool fan. <laughs> <laughs> but when I look at, when I look at Lionel Messi and the things he, that man does with his body, and he, I, how many players change direction as often as him? Yeah. And as effortless as him, but yet he does it so gracefully, and you know, rarely seems to hurt himself doing it. No, it you know whatever he developed, and he was a late developer, incidentally, um, which is I think was worth mentioning. <laughs> yeah, the best soccer player in the world was yeah. a late developer. You know, um, yeah, I mean, he he obviously developed, you know, uh, an ability to move. That allowed him to. He's like a. I don't know. He's like he. He soars, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Just, just so graceful. Again, to, uh, to quote uh, Dan John again. I think his last or the third principle in his philosophy is to strive for mastery and grace. And regardless of how strong you are, and another quote. I think it's Charlie Francis. If it looks right, it flies right. And he uses it to describe if you know nothing about athletics and you go to an athletics meet you can probably pick out who the winner's going to be just because their movement is just so graceful and efficient. Yeah, absolutely. And when you, if you look at the perceptual motor skills, let's stick with Massey for a moment. If you look at the perceptual motor skills on display when he is playing, okay, relationship. He knows where every other player is. Spatial awareness. He knows where the space is to move into. Temporal and, you know, temporal and rhythm. He 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 always no he always gets the right touch. That's something else. But in terms of you know when he receives the ball, he almost never has a bad first touch. So he knows the exact amount of force to just put on that ball to receive it. Okay, his rhythm when he's when he's when he's dribbling is just phenomenal. Um, our will have to just kind of guess at that one. Visual, I mean, come on. You know, I mean, that, that, that free kick against Liverpool in the first leg, <laughs> you know, was just insane, you know. So, but these are all, all those perception motor skills, they're there for us to, to see if we're looking for them instead of just looking at what he's doing with the ball. It's everything that leads up to that ability. Yeah. 
and uh, in regards to the perceptual motor skills, I always think of extreme examples from sports. So if you take a, a footballer doing an overhead kick, like there's so much going on there. You've got to visually track the ball. You've got to be able to position your body in a way that you're going to make contact with the ball whilst having the proprioceptive awareness of being upside down. Um, there's just so much going on. But yeah. off the back of the comments you've made, looking into the perceptual motor skill stuff has really challenged me as a practitioner to think, yes, we know strength's important and it's easy to quantify. And in that, in that regard, it's, it's very seductive in the sense of mm-hmm. I can keep improving it, I can keep tabs on it, but surely our goal as practitioners is to improve the ability of an athlete to influence play in their chosen sport. And going back to Messi, if you got given an athlete and said, right, you can either have an athlete or a footballer, just because we're using that example, who knows where his body is in time and space, who knows the right amount of force to put on the ball, who uh, has the peripheral uh, vision or visual awareness to pick mm-hmm. that pass versus an athlete, for example, who jumps high, sprints well. And yes, those things are definitely important, but you can't really have one without the other. And actually in strength and conditioning, it's easy to think, right, our role is just this physical thing over here. rather than, as you said, developing the whole athlete so that they can actually utilize those physical skills effectively by having all these perceptual motor skills built up alongside it yeah absolutely and you know i think we can ask ourselves the question we can you know is he just a genius or (laughs) has he got acutely developed perceptual motor skills yeah yeah it's it's one of the reasons why so um i've been looking at a load of the school of calisthenics stuff i think they do a great job and it's got me thinking like how many different movement situations can you uh put an athlete in and how can you appropriately scale that to develop the both the physical and the perceptual motor skills uh you're after on that subject uh i've just realized i was just enjoying the chat so much i've almost gone completely off piste but what would your assessment process be like either for a very young athlete or for um just assessing how developed or underdeveloped an athlete's perceptual motor skills are? Okay. Um, funnily enough, you actually pinned it down to the perceptual motor skills. So um, I was actually about to say that it's often, sometimes it's qualitative. In other words, I want to see how, how well they're moving in general. And sometimes it's quantitative. I feel they're moving well enough that it's worth measuring. Yeah. So, you know, so it, you know if it's, if it's a young child, I'm going to be looking at locomotion. So I want to see, you know, skipping, various different crawling patterns and seeing how I want to see him going forwards, backwards, sideways, uh, hopping bilaterally and unilaterally. I'm, so, I'm really looking to see what their proprioception is like and their ability to even be their spatial awareness going backwards. Everything that we do forwards, we do going backwards. I was helping somebody to drive years ago and uh, I was teaching him to drive in reverse around the car park. Back then, supermarkets weren't open on a Sunday. <laughs> and, you know, my explanation, why am I driving around this car park backwards? My answer was, if you can drive around this backwards and know what you're doing, forwards is going to be a piece of cake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah, so we're going to look at uh, jumping mechanics. I want to see how well they can land before I see how high they can jump. They can't land. We're not gonna 
do too much jumping yet. Um, you know, squat, a lot of this will be going through basic movements. The over at squat, I find a very useful one to look at. Um, you know, just give them a, a dowel. So it's very load, but it really does challenge, you know, their, their more skills to see if they can over at squat. And I just want to look and see what's happening there. I don't make a big deal of the assessment process. I just make a game of it, you know? Yeah. Uh, we'll throw and catch a ball. I want to see what they can do with their right hand and left hand. We'll go small to a uh, table tennis ball, right up to a kind of half size uh, football. Um, kick. Just want to see what their direction, sense of direction, their power. We'll, you know, throw some sand bells a little bit overhead. You know, I'm going to look at everything, rotation. And it's a lot of it is to do with manipulation as well as, as locomotion. So hopefully that just gives you a good overview. There's a lot in there. Yeah, that's brilliant. No, I, I think it's spot on. The, in terms of the qualitative assessment, it, it never ceases to amaze me when I'll be taking young athletes for a warm-up and I'll be like, right, we're just going to backpedal or jog backwards. And they're like, oh, backpedal? Back what, 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 what does that mean? And in my head, I'm like, what do you mean what's a back pedal or what do you mean jogging backwards it's like you know but as you've noted in uh, the various blogs that i've read of yours motor skills are declining rapidly and as brett clicker in one of his blogs or one of his videos says that in uh, in previous years gone by this would just be it wouldn't be a strength conditioning coach's role per se it wouldn't be a physical educator's role per se the fact that kids would play would just develop these skills by themselves yeah. um you felt passionate enough to help out a school that's uh, local to you in terms of donating your time. What was it uh, that made you want to actually take action rather than, for example, bemoaning lack of physical skills or movement skills on social media? Uh, a few years ago, I realized that I, I had, I suppose, a combination of a passion for and an affinity for working with, with kids. So that's why I decided to specialize in that area. And uh, so, you know, most of my clients would be aged kind of between seven up to 15, 16. But as more and more and more new clients were coming into me, I was realizing that as they were getting older, that there was a real drop in, in the level of movement ability. And I just was just sitting there one evening and I just said, well, there's no point in going on Facebook and giving out about it and just sitting here and, and you know, and brooding about it so I said look be the change you want to see in the world so um, I started getting on to primary schools and I offered all my services to them and I just said look this is who I am this is what I do I'm seeing a, an issue with, uh, with, with children's uh, health deteriorating because of, of just lack of, of structured play anymore or, oh well unstructured play and structured PE so uh, I offered my services five schools turned me down they just said, oh, no, we're grand, we're grand. I was shocked, but they did. And then one school, which could have been a school to turn me down, because they do quite a lot of sports, so it wouldn't have surprised me if they felt they were doing well. But no, the principal was unbelievably open-minded. She loved the idea. We had to do a few things like, you know, make sure that, you know, I was uh, the guard vetted here. And uh, once, you know... Yes, I was, I'm already Garda slash police vetted. So insurance, once all those things were in place, we started. And I'm so glad I did this because I videoed the first few months of it. And then I left the gap and I videoed the last few weeks. 
And I also uh, got everybody to answer a questionnaire at the start and at the end about how they felt they were. Now, it was, it was a subjective questionnaire, obviously. How they were sleeping and things like that. Do you feel restless in class and so on? And I actually have enough information to make a documentary, I think, out of it if, if somebody was interested. But the, in the space of three months, all the children were sleeping better on the day I was there. So I was only there once a week, but the day I was there, they reported they were sleeping better that night. The teachers reported that they had uh, improved attention span in class and they were less restless on the day I was there. Yes, it carried over to the next day, but then it kind of wore off, which goes to show they need to be doing this more than once a week. Yeah. And uh, so I worked with a third class, um, which would kind of be aged kind of eight to nine. Um, before up to from September to December and then January through to the summer term in, in June I worked with sixth class and you know what it was a great experience for me the kids had a lot of fun it was a big class there was 35 or so children in each class so what I did was I divided them into two and I just did two separate sessions with, with each of them and I'm glad I did that because they got so much more face time from me yeah and what I like that you've shown there is from, for example, a strength conditioning perspective or a strength conditioning coach going into school, should I say, it's very easy to measure metrics in things that we know we should be. So I don't know, uh, jump height or distance, um, rep maxes, whatever. But actually schools, one, not saying they don't care, but that's not the language they're going to speak. Whereas if you're having that greater impact, as you said throughout the entire podcast, sleeping better, more attentive lessons, you're literally putting their brains in a better situation where they can take on new information more mm -hmm. readily. Like that's the sort of stuff that schools care about. And that's probably what's going to get stakeholder buy. And especially when it comes to, for example, and this will be, this is my next question, I suppose is especially when it comes to differentiating the services you provide versus say, I don't know, just a, keep fit type class or you know a conditioning class or just simply another after school activity mm -hmm. okay and what's the exact actual so, question so the question is how do you or i'll give a little sort of um preface first is a lot of times or sometimes what i've done with athletes to the untrained eye it looks like we're just having games or just having fun yeah. whereas there's obviously method in the madness in terms of perceptual motor skills mobile um manipulation stabilization locomotion how do you educate slash describe your services so that a school for example doesn't say thank you very much shane but we've already got that in place if does that make more sense okay it does um i'm not so sure it's applicable to me i could give you a hypothetical yeah um, i'll do i'll give you a hypothetical um yeah, I would say to them that because children aren't allowed to have the free play anymore, like I'll, I'll remind, we're dealing with adults here, that, you know, so I'm going to remind them, hey, do you remember when we were kids, we used to climb walls, climb trees, hang off branches, fall down, roll around, kick balls, throw balls, and there was no adult standing over us telling us how to do it. That's how we learned to, to, to move and explore our environment. Kids aren't allowed to do this anymore. What I, what, I, what I am offering is a gameplay-based activity where they will have loads of fun and learn all this stuff without actually realizing it through me giving them 
guided games in certain ways. So for instance, we could be doing a game of tag and I'm t they're, they're learning how to do speed, speed and agility there. But if I want them to do variations like uh, dodgeball, they know they're throwing, they're dodging. Uh, if I want them to free somebody by crawling through their legs, they're getting down and getting back up again. All these different things I can challenge the kids with through gameplay. That's absolutely brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. You've certainly uh, certainly sold me, even if we are preaching to the choir. My next question relates to, so one thing I've certainly learned from PE teachers and through my role uh, teaching uh, PE this year, um, which I haven't got from strength and conditioning, is the idea of differentiation. Now, when I first started teaching PE, my sort of limited understanding of it was just you're just simply progressing and regressing something so it's relevant to the person that's doing it. But in PE, you obviously get a far bigger range or typically tend to get a far bigger range because it's compulsory that the kids are there rather than, for example, kids who love Taekwondo and turn up at one of your sessions because mm -hmm. they've already got a vested interest. So how do you manipulate your games, whether it's dodgeball, tag or whatever, to ensure that even the pupils who perhaps have lower levels of physical literacy are still being challenged relative to their capabilities, as well as the ones who, for example, maybe they play multiple sports and dodgeball for them is just, you know, a walk in the park. That's a great question, Todd. Okay. I find that virtually every game can be simplified, you know, to, to include everybody. Um, if it's a game, I, I would like to start it at the lowest level. And then what I can do is, if I see a few children that I know are, are capable for more challenges, what I'll do is, rather than, rather than uh, telling the children I need to regress and, get, and drawing attention to them, I'll start the game at the lowest level. And I'll find the children that need more challenge, and I'll go to them. And I'll say, okay, you instead of maybe running around, I want you hopping on one leg, whatever it might be. And I will challenge them that way. Now, I don't have a specific game in mind right now, but hopefully that kind of gives you an idea. No, that's great. Because I think oftentimes, or certainly in my experience, like kids aren't stupid. Like, for example, if you have, I don't know, four tennis courts, four lessons, and mm. you're like, oh, this is this group go here, this group go here, this group go here. And I have a kid say to me, is this the bottom court? And like, they're not stupid. They know that, for example, they're with people of similar ability and they've walked past the people on the top court and they, they can see that they're better. But I like things which, as you said, the kids don't know or aren't necessarily going to sit there and think that hopping's more difficult than running. They're just enjoying themselves and having fun. And to them, it's not better or worse. It's just different. Yeah, absolutely. And now one of the strategies that I do use is that I will get into the children into groups. So if I've got, say, 30 in a group, and I would say, right, we're going to group up, you know, and we'll use a game like, uh, you know, uh, Wolf Attack or something like that. You know, you're going to get gobbled up if you don't get into a group of five very quickly. And yeah. I say, group of five. And they're... They, now I don't have to take responsibility for grouping the children. They are only too excited to get themselves into groups, you know, and not be the one that's left out and gobbled up by the wolf or the shark or choose your predator of choice. Yeah. Um, no, I, so once I have them in groups, then I'm going to actually say, okay, you guys, we've got five minutes. Any game you want to play, this is your area. I'll give each of them their own area. 
But the difference is, is I haven't grouped them by ability. What I have done is I've just grouped them. And they're all going to be similar ages anyway. But because they now have a collective say on the game, and it's not just me, I'm reasonably confident that all the children will be able to have a say in what they're doing in the rules so that they can all participate. And I haven't noticed a problem yet, and I've been doing this for years, whereby somebody was just totally left out because they weren't able to participate in the game, that they had a say in choosing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I typically find that, and I'm sure you do the same, that actually kids are more socially aware than we perhaps give them credit for. Oh, 100%. Oh, if, if we stayed out of it more often, the kids would be fine. Truthfully, yeah, we need to make sure nobody jumps out a window or something crazy <laughs> or runs into the brick wall. We need to be there to supervise for safety. But if we actually stopped organizing their games a little bit and just let them off and give them that uh, creativity, they'll shock us with how creative they can be and how much fun they can have if we'll allow them to. Oh, absolutely. And on the sort of social, uh, psychosocial development, uh, again, mentioning Dan John, he's got some really interesting thoughts on the negatives of early specialization, which I've not heard before. And he gave the account of, for example, when you're kids and you are designing a game with no adults, you've got to referee it. You've got to decide who's on whose team. You've got to decide how you might make it fair. If I don't know, one team's got five, one team's got four. You've got to come to a decision. If I don't know, you playing soccer, football, whatever, and you think it's a penalty or you think it went on the inside of the jumper. They don't think it did. And actually those social skills are only going to happen if we're out of the way. Whereas if there's an adult there, it's like, no, that was a penalty or no, that was a foul. Like, as you said, sometimes us as practitioners are actually the thing getting in the way of the kid or the athlete developing. Oh, absolutely. Um, when I tell you this one, you know, the swimming noodles, Yes, yes, waddles. Okay. Yeah, yeah, these long foam um, things. So I, I always keep them in the, t in the Taekwondo school because they're great for, um, for you, know, you can make kind of hurdles and yep. stuff. They're soft, nobody hurts themselves. So, you know, if I say, right, you know, what, we've got these noodles, we've got cones, what do you want to play? Anything. Now, they could use those noodles for, all, for so many different things. Do you know what they want to do? A noodle war. Yeah. <laughs> they actually want to pick these things up and flake each other with them. And, you know, one of the things that uh, Brett Clicker was talking about the weekend was that um, aggressiveness is increasing in, uh, in older children in the States at the moment because he's saying that they have less tactile awareness. So because roughhousing seems to be getting banned over there more yeah. and more, children now aren't developing this tactile uh, awareness of what's safe contact and what's not safe contact. So they're beginning to uh, react aggressively to, to almost any contact. So, you know, now I've got these children here and, and they're just attacking each other with these noodles. They're not going to do any harm to each other, but for them, that is fun. Yeah. That is fun, that rough play. And it is insane to think that we're taking that away from children. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I can't remember if it was your channel or um, somebody else's channel I watched where kids were literally wrestling. Um, and I was like, well, you, you almost by thinking, oh, somebody's going to get hurt. It's like, oh, well, don't climb a tree in case you fall down. It's like, well, the kid will, whether they can verbalize it or not, they'll learn why they fell down. Or whether it's wrestling, they'll intuitively work out what is a more advantageous position to put their body in. And I'm sure it's Brett Clicker's stuff where 
I've seen where he said that with the tactile awareness decreasing, kids struggle to differentiate between, for example, a friendly touch, like a hug, a pat on the back versus, as you said, an aggressive touch, whether it's, you know, trying to taekwondo boxing or, you know, whatever. And their motor response to that emotionally and physically is just inappropriate. Yes. Yes. And it's trying to process all the sensory information that's coming at them. It's, is this comfortable? Is this uncomfortable? What is going on here? I don't know. And yeah, we, we, we need to let you explore all that. And in regards to your going almost full circle back to your Taekwondo, how important do you think it is that strength conditioning coaches have coaching experience that is outside of lifting? Hmm. In Taekwondo or in any sport? And then, I, I, I think it is essential, to be honest with you. I think the more limited your scope is, it comes back to if, if your only tool is a hammer, everything's a nail. Yeah. You know, the more, I, I'll be honest with you, I, I, I look back to a year or two ago even, and I, and I kind of say to myself, God, I was a terrible instructor back then. Uh, this constant self-evaluation, you know, that am I getting better? And one of the reasons that I'm getting better is that because my kids are teaching me now, how are they teaching me? They're teaching me because they're coming to me with problems to solve. And I need to find cues or some kind of guidance to help them overcome a movement issue. And so often it happens, well, I've used this cue, I've used this, I've used this, I've used this, and nothing has helped. So now I have to get creative and I, have to, I literally have to solve that problem. And the more experience that I have as a coach of disciplines of not just sports, but all the possibilities of movement enables me to actually solve the, that child's problem. Yeah. But they've started the process with me by coming to me with something that I can't solve immediately. I really have to reach inside and, and get creative. And that now means that, okay, next time I meet a child with this issue, I've got, I've got another option another way to solve solve that issue and um you know so it comes so coaches that are limited in their scope and their experience it's it's just going to be that much harder for them to be creative oh absolutely the even for example coaching some sports like athletics like stuff like sprints fairly comfortable with like it's speed tends to be you know within ukca or whatever assessment but for example teaching the javelin i'm like right okay my Shoulders don't quite get in the position when I do it quickly. And one of my colleagues was talking me through javelin and we were going super, super slow and even doing positions isometrically. And all of a sudden my brain clicked. I was like, ah, this must be what it's like when, you know, you're teaching, I don't know, a young athlete to squat or whatever. You've tried every cue. And as you said, the body just can't hear you. And for me, it's about realizing the more sports I teach or try and learn myself, you realize in terms of that general movement toolbox, sports are more similar than they are different. Yes, obviously they all have their own nuances. And for example, a crossover step in say throwing the javelin versus tennis is slightly different, but you realize actually, if you've got that general movement toolbox, then as you said, approaching sport or physical activity, you're just going to feel a lot more confident and competent with it. Yeah, absolutely. And the more, the more experience, you don't have to be, look, nobody's an expert in everything. No. But if you have some experience of different disciplines, it just allows you to, not always to be creative, but you can find analogies 
you know, to help with somebody. Like, for example, um, I was doing some um, s- some sandball slams against the wall with a teenager the other day. And uh, there was such a, a deficit um, when he was rotating from right to left compared to left to right. And uh, he's, he's, he wants to be a professional soccer goalkeeper. But he loves golf as well. So this 15-year-old is playing golf. And I'm trying to give him a reason for working on his weaker side. And, okay, I don't like golf myself, yeah. but at least I've seen enough to know how the swing works. So I just so I have to find something that he can relate to to give him a reason to work on something he couldn't be bothered to doing at home. You know, so I'm talking about his golf swing and just explaining, okay, you know, you're driving. At some point, are you going to stop that club? Are you going to stop your swing? Or are you just going to rotate forever and more? He goes, no, no, you have to stop. And he's thinking about Tiger Woods and... So I said, okay, so what do you think you're doing? But we are, all those core muscles you're using to generate force to, to drive that ball. What do you think you're doing to stop? You've got to use muscles to just isometrically rotate almost in the opposite direction. So do you not think that that's going to help you control your swing? And it's just trying to simplify that concept to a teenager to give him a reason to go and work on it. If I have no idea, which is also because you know the reason why you should get to know your athletes. Yeah, because he's coming to me really because he wants to be a goalkeeper. But if I don't converse with him and get to know the boy, you know, I don't know that he likes to play golf as well. You know, and that was a more valuable analogy for him. So, yeah, so you know, we need to be able to use things that that kids can relate to as well to give them a reason to work on something if need be. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one mistake I made in my own coaching career is almost thinking. And again, this might sound counterintuitive when you're working with athletes who are quite high up, but is thinking that every athlete you work with trains with you because they want to improve their sport. And you're there sort of preaching that the benefits of this exercise will help you in this sporting scenario. Whereas with really young athletes, like they, they, they don't care, not, not out of a negative way, but they, they don't care. They, as you said, they just want to have fun. And if that's disguising movements in there and they're having fun, they might not be able to articulate that the reason they do your sessions is to have fun. But if the stress, if the stress that training comes with training isn't fun, then, and volume is a key um, underpinning principle of adaptation, they're just not going to turn up. And as you said, all the physical stimulus is then irrelevant. You know, absolutely. And, you know, again, coming back to, to gameplay with, it doesn't even have to be with young kids. All the adults I work with love to play games. If you find me an adult who doesn't enjoy a good game, <laughs> you, you won't find one. And it's it's about how we approach it as well, you know. And because adults like to feel safe, but like you might remember back to Child Champion uh, two years ago. Yeah. You know, some two games that I love to play with anybody who's able to do this. Um, it's great for like you know for anti rotation, rock paper scissors in a press position. As soon as they lift that hand off the ground. They have to brace. Um, a wheelbarrow race, lovely, you know, anti-extension exercise, and it's a game. We can do, you know, we're racing each other. It's good fun. But if you want to make it challenging, hold one leg <laughs> and yeah. let the other leg be free. Now they have a really, really good anti-rotation exercise as well as anti-extension. And, and you know, these things, we, we can do so much by disguising it in, in games. Yeah, and then you don't have the negative connotations that might or might not come with uh, training, for want of a better word. Uh, in in wrapping up, obviously you've we've mentioned like loads of books, resources. 
who would you say has had the biggest influence on you as a coach, whether it's someone from your personal life or someone from the coaching field? Um, oh, it's actually hard to pin it down to one person. I've had a lot of fantastic mentors over the years. I'll be honest with you. Um, uh, there's a gentleman I would like to give a mention to. Okay, do you know what? My dad was a secondary school teacher. Yeah. He's had a massive influence on me. He had a passion for teaching. And my mother is also a music teacher. So I think it's probably one of the reasons why I ended up as an instructor. <laughs> makes sense. Makes sense. I think it's, yeah, yeah. I don't put everything down to genetics, but, you know, I guess it has to be there in my blood somewhere. Both my parents are teachers in the form. So I know that's what I do as well, you know. So I would say that. And plus, they were both very passionate about it. And I saw that. Yeah. You know, so I do it because I love it and not just because I'm, I'm good at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in terms of coaching, again, I won't force you to uh, pick just one if there's a couple that spring to mind. But if you could spend time observing any coach with his or her athletes, who would you choose to spend time with? Well, actually, after having Brett click over last weekend, I would say Brett would definitely be a, a contender for top spot. Wicked. Wicked. Yeah. And uh, recommended resources, whether it's uh, a book you've recently read, podcast, whatever you would like that recommended resource to be. Okay, I'll give you a combination. Um, book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Yep, excellent book. And I would also go with uh, Brett Bartholomew's The Art of Coaching. Yeah. I think every coach is, is well read up on, on the science stuff. Uh, I think we need to, when you bring back the human element into it, you, you're going to see better results. In terms of uh, educational resources from the strength and conditioning side, I'll give you two. Uh, Rob Anderson's Athletic Evolution is fantastic. He, he's been in interviews with some fantastic coaches. And I think that's one of the reasons why I would, I would give that one as a great resource because he's got a very, very good broad range of interviews on it. So, and then uh, Brett Clicker's Spider Fit Kids is one to definitely check out for as well. Yeah, superb resources there. I mean, I'll link I'll link both of those up in the show notes. And uh, final, well, penultimate question is where can people find you or reach out to you? ShaneFitzgibbon.ie Perfect. And as with everything else, I'll chuck it in the uh, show notes. And again, I feel like it's hard to limit it just to one because I've literally got uh, notes upon notes sat in front of me. But if you had to limit the podcast to one key take home for whether it's coaches, uh, sports teachers or parents what would you like your one key take home from this episode to be empower the kids you work with beautiful beautiful i absolutely love it mate really appreciate your time um giving up your afternoon and it's been absolutely brilliant to talk shop it's been a real pleasure todd thanks for having me on my absolute pleasure my absolute pleasure take care mate all the best cheerio Take it easy. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to episode 10 of the Platform to Perform podcast with Shane Fitzgibbon there. If you want to understand more about perceptual motor skills, then I would highly recommend you check out Brett Clicker's 60 Ways to Play, as Shane mentioned. If we're only developing physical skills, we're doing both our athletes and the kids we work with a disservice. If you want to reach out to me or just give feedback on the episode, you can find me if you search Todd Davidson P2P Coaching on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube and Instagram. Thank you very much for listening. Catch you again in the next episode.